You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simon, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. And I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the site. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. Now, it is only our second episode, and you are already in a kind of special circumstance, because Dan, you're currently visiting Aaron, right? Yes, we're currently coming to you, instead of uh, two rooms across the country, we're coming to you two rooms across from one another. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's very nice. It had been far too long after the pandemic. Yeah, we jinxed ourselves because with um, with attending PAXs together regularly and, and just visiting each other uh, before COVID hit, uh, Dan actually said to me at one point, oh, we're on this nice monthly cadence where we see each other pretty regularly now. And then, of course, we subsequently couldn't see each other for about one year and three months thereabouts. And so, a global pandemic hit. <laughs> just as a joke to make fun of Dan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dan makes pithy observations and God laughs. How is that <laughs> when you can actually encounter another real person? I mean, I can't even remember. It's funny. I was saying to Aaron because uh, you know we've uh, I've, I've met um, a lot of people out here while I've been here, and I didn't realize how uh, my interpersonal skills have become so dependent on Zoom calls and seeing people in little screens, and so seeing people in person has been uh, an adjustment <laughs> to meet them and introduce myself and all that good stuff. So we're relearning how to talk to each other in person. Yeah, you forget that people have a bottom half. I had such a weird <laughs> moment just recently where I encountered a student of mine on the street and we had previously only ever spoken in Zoom conferences as part of my class. Yeah. Right. And it was this weird feeling of, you know, are you actually real? You know, you first acknowledge that this person actually exists properly as a human being. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so that's bizarre. Seeing meeting somebody after having known them that long. I guess that's been happening on the internet for as long as the internet's been around, but it's definitely different now. Yeah, I don't know though. I this is maybe giving too much credit to people who play video games regularly, but I feel like we do have an easier time adjusting than a lot of other people because we are already somewhat familiar uh, and habituated to this concept of interacting through virtual means, right? Uh, which is not to say that <laughs> there wasn't a learning uh, learning curve when we you know, started seeing people again for the first time in person. But I, I think we have an easier go of it than people who, uh, you know, really saw the transition to pure Zoom as a totally different mode of engaging with people that they weren't familiar with at all. Yeah, a whole new world. Yep. So you're you're up next, Stefan. We're going to come see you. That's our plan. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll you you're very Germany. welcome to do that. Yeah. I'm waving to you from all the way across the globe. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and we are waving to you out there, dear listeners, because as you know, at With a Terrible Fate, we strive to give everyone, and this is an emphasis I would have done last week already, but I forgot it completely. We strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling and that is why this show is free it's free for everyone it is independent you won't encounter any advertisements you won't run into a paywall and instead we rely entirely on your support and if you wish to contribute then we would be most humbly grateful if you would go to patreon.com with a terrible fate 
Today we want to think about origin stories. We want to explore the significance of origin stories for the storytelling in video games because origin stories are probably one of the most widely established narrative structures, right? Um, they are, I would say, narrative arcs that tell us how the hero became the hero. That would at least be, you know, my layman's impromptu definition. It's fitting in more than one way. Uh, of course, for those listeners who were with us last week, uh, we started with our own origin stories. And I think there is something that's really deeply attractive to the human psyche about understanding, you know, what made an agent who they are uh, and what led their psychology to be such that they make, you know, certain choices in the world. Uh, it's interesting too, because uh, as we were just talking about off mic before we started recording this, it's it's a little more complicated than it initially seems because as you just said, Stefan, uh, an origin story can constitute an overall arc uh, of a story. And there are certain games that do that, uh, that I'm sure we'll get into and talk about, but it can also be just the first component of a broader story and a familiar arc, um, like the hero's journey, where, where a character comes from is just the kind of establishing part of the story and the arc goes on from there. So uh, I think that versatility is part of what makes it so interesting and so prevalent in, in all kinds of storytelling media. Yeah. So you can kind of think about it like there's, the origin story that maybe comic book fans may be more familiar with, where it's almost the the raison d'etre for this character, how they came to be, what they what they believe in. But um, there's also, I think, what we're going to be getting into this idea that within a story, there's also the origin, where we kind of get that very um, very upfront, and we get very close and personal with the character um, that we're going to be following throughout the journey, and we get to see what is what are the values that this person. Um, finds important. What are the what are their goals? Who are they, and how do we expect they may change as this journey goes on? Exactly. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the origin stories primarily pertaining to the protagonist because there are origin stories of antagonists as well. There are origin stories for entire worlds, for what it's worth. But we're going to look at only origin stories of protagonists as they are particularly popular, particularly widespread and they tie basically back to the idea of formalism. Formalism is the assumption that we can look at narratives and we can abstract them to form these uh, foundations, these fragments that make them and that we can then use as building blocks in various different stories. Um, iconically, Vladimir Prop, who's like a Russian formalist, uh, he wrote the mythology of the folktale in 1928. And he went ahead and analyzed hundreds, I think, hundreds of Russian folktales and recognized patterns. That's why it's called formalism, right? That would be applied in various different folktales. Just, you know, the characters change, the exact story changes, of course, but the building blocks remain the same. And it was properly popularized then by Joseph Campbell as the monomyth, also known as the hero's journey. This is how most people will know it in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces from 1949. Yes, it's not a bad thing to even tie back to someone more closer to home for you, Stefan, uh, your fellow German, uh, Carl Jung, right? Uh, his emphasis and focus on archetypes and these um, basically 
mythological forms uh, that live in our subconscious and that, you know, society throughout time has just kind of gleaned and used as a way to establish itself is is very much of a piece with you know the the idea of the fairy tale and of these common as you say building blocks of storytelling right i always think of that uh whenever you know hopefully our listeners can relate to this you know when you sit down and play a game or even watch a movie and you get the sense that you understand what we often talk about as the formula you get a sense of where the plot might be going even though this is a new story with which you've never engaged before right uh, when you do that it's that's that's all that we're really talking about when we say something like formalism or the hero's journey it's this idea of an abstract storytelling form that you just are able to intuit because it's so prevalent and also speaks to something uh that that resonates with how we understand people to become who they are and as the as the resident religious studies scholar, I will also say that what I find really interesting about origin stories, um, or if you want to get a really fancy ten dollar word, mythopoeia, then the idea is maybe maybe there are these archetypes that we we in, inherently grasp towards, but then another looking at it from the other side is um, if you look at these origin stories and you pick up on similarities, you start to ask yourself oh, maybe those things are important to the people who are telling those stories. If they keep coming up time and time again, maybe it's not so much this collective unconscious idea, but more so this is what this culture, this is what this group of people values. And so they think, here's the origin. Um, Here's the origin for a hero who's going to develop um, the traits that we find heroic. Yeah, and maybe it is because this idea of the origin story is so close to mythology, is so close to traditional fairy tales, that it is also quite successfully adapted in video games that work in very similar ways. The first thing that popped into my head was Super Mario, obviously, because there you have the situation, it's a very condensed form of origin story, where you have, you know, in not in any particular Mario game, but just like in all the Mario games, the scenario where you have a Mario and Peach and everyone they they have a nice party and uh, with a with a cake and then Bowser comes trotting in and he steals the princess and maybe even the cake too and uh, <laughs> then Mario must you know venture out and rise to the occasion and become Super Mario to bring the princess back and restore that peace to the world. I think Super Mario and just the Mario franchise in general is a great example too because in the very basic model that you just outlined it's a very standard um you know formalist approach to like a hero's journey right but it also shows the degree to which that can be a template or foundation for much more nuanced and sophisticated storytelling because i mean if you think about something like some of the Mario RPGs or like um, Super Mario Thousand Year Door, uh, which we've talked about uh, with, with people at cons before quite a bit. Uh, some of those stories, you know, despite being Mario, can can get pretty complicated and nuanced pretty fast, uh, but they're still all grounded in this very basic and archetypal idea of what a story is that we can grok to pretty immediately, right? And so in Mario contains multitudes, you might say. Yeah, it's it's a, a knight saving a princess from a dragon, really, when you when you break it down, right? Yeah. What Stefan just described is something that's in any number of fairy tales across the globe. So yes, it's a sometimes uh, simple origin stories like with Super Mario, like Aaron is saying, just set the stage for really interesting and and 
um, more specific stories that you can find yourself invested in. Yeah, and if we abstract from such tropes like the damsel in distress, which is obviously quite prominent here, then we can see that it works so well because it is so iconic, it's so intuitive. You establish a peaceful world and then there comes an outside intrusion. In this case, you know, Bowser comes in and disrupts that peace and it must then subsequently be restored in a lengthy quest. Yeah, I, I want to flag this because um, we, we don't need to get into it in this conversation. But one of the things that's so interesting to me about that notion of simplicity and storytelling, especially with reference to those uh, more standard archetypal stories, is I think we've reached this funny moment in storytelling, um, not just in video games, although it pertains to video games, where the normal mode of operations for storytellers is this expectation of having really fancy twists or unexpected elements of their story so that it actually seems counterintuitively novel and challenging when a storyteller tells a story that is just very by the book and simple and what you expect to happen is in fact what happens. I think about this a lot in terms of games like even Final Fantasy 15 or Tales of Zestiria, like especially with JRPGs that are oftentimes so complicated, sometimes the most unexpected and challenging thing is just when they do exactly what you expect they will, uh, which I think is is an interesting just look into where we are as a society nowadays. But Dan, I know we we chatted briefly in your origin story about how you found your origin in video games in looking at Ocarina of Time, one of the games that Stefan mentioned um, through the lens of literary theory and in fact, Joseph Campbell himself. So uh, maybe you want to share a little bit more color uh, to how that factors into an origin story with our listeners. Sure. Well, I think that um, one thing that uh, Ocarina of Time is, I think, a very rich game. Um, and very nuanced, like we're talking about, but also uh, similar to Super Mario and other fairy tales, it has a very simple setup, um, namely saving a princess, um, veturing forth into this uh, this world with a lot of different people and things to do. But um, ultimately, it's fighting back evil and and saving a princess and bringing peace back to the world. And it starts very humbly, um, and I think very importantly, with the main character Link being clearly described to us as an outsider, this person who doesn't necessarily belong in the world that he finds himself. Um, you know, he grows up in this forest, but he's not actually a member of this forest species or, you know, this, this tribe of Kokiri that he's living with. And his origin story is, is more or less being told, Link, there's a reason you don't fit in. It's because you don't belong here. In fact, you, you are, you are to go out on this journey um, to help Princess Zelda and fight back the evil Ganondorf and ultimately save Hyrule. And I think that what I find so compelling about the origin story presented to us in those first few hours of Ocarina of Time is that not only does it showcase where heroes typically come from, namely outside of the world in which they inhabit in some way, shape, or form, but they have to make a choice. And the choice is presented to them very early on, like Joseph Campbell would tell us, this idea that, all right, you can either remain in this world that you have just been told is not necessarily yours, or you can accept this difficult quest and go forth and learn more about not only the world, but about yourself. And so we can get into any number of um, origin stories that have uh, 
difficult, complex, and nuanced um, values that the the hero may um, may find themselves looking for. But I think what's so beautifully simple about Ocarina of Time, especially, is that the value is totally predicated on the choice that Link makes. I am courageous enough to leave this place and do this thing that has been set before me. It's not a very complicated narrative, but it's a very simple and very understandable narrative to, I think, anyone who plays it, which is, am I able to step outside of my comfort zone and do this great thing that's been laid out before me? Um, Very simple, but sometimes the simple stories are the most effective ones. Yeah, I think that is a very interesting conflict. It is a conflict that some stories focus on entirely, right? If you think of this this conflict that Link has where he has to make the decision of whether to remain in his world or whether to venture out, I instantly had to think of Spider-Man because he's also, he is kind of an outsider, right? He doesn't fit in anywhere really. He's bullied in school and so on. Peter Parker hasn't really found his place and then he obtains that superpower and he receives this, this call to become a vigilante, to fight injustice, to restore peace to the world. And it is a persistent conflict of responsibility that is constantly negotiated within the Spider-Man series, especially in his origin story. Yes, and I I think that um, what I love about the Peter Parker example, um, it's maybe less apparent with Link from Ocarina of Time, but I think that, you know, listeners, you'll find that it is very similar. Um, The the nature of Joseph Campbell's monomyth is that it is cyclical, and it's not like you're stuck in any one particular step of it along the way. Things kind of come back in different shades. And I think that... um, Peter Parker is a great example. Spider-Man is a great example of um, consistently making that choice to stick to stick to the values that were put before him at the beginning. And so it's this um, constant input that he has to that he has to make, which is, I think, very understandable to those of to those of us who play video games. When you're playing um, as Link, uh, you too are making the choice consistently to be courageous and take up the sword and and continue along the story. So I think that um, one, one really great aspect of these origin stories too, especially through the lens of Campbell, is that um, it is so simple to take what's happening with the character and put it onto ourselves and think about what it is that, um, how these values are being presented to us and how we may act upon them as well. And it makes me wonder, how does that work in Breath of the Wild? Because in Ocarina of Time, as you just mentioned, you... We have this uh, rather traditional, straightforward, if not necessarily uh, simple or or subtly presented um, origin story. And in, in Breath of the Wild, it is quite different, though. There, we wake up in a cave, or Link wakes up in a cave, a strange cave, and you venture outside, you're let loose in this vast world. And it feels to me like the entirety of Breath of the Wild is basically about... Um, rediscovering Link's origin story. I would agree with that, Stefan. I think I think in a in a couple of different layers, because I think at, at on the one hand, one aspect of the story is that Link is um, literally within the narrative, remembering the memories of of his past um, encounters with Zelda and the other characters in the game. But also, I think it serves as a reminder of the origin of of the character Link, the archetype Link, if you want to call it that. This idea that a hero can come from anywhere, and really it is just 
persistence and making the choice, making the the same right choice, you know, no matter what situation that you're in. So I think that Breath of the Wild is a great um, almost meditation on, hey, does does the origin story hold up in this case? Is it something that we can go back to and still find meaning from? I think that Breath of the Wild is a really interesting case study in how the kind of choice that you're talking about, Dan, also factors into origin stories, especially in video games, because it presents you and Link with the opportunity to basically make meaning out of Link's putative origin story in whatever way you want to and choose to go along with it or not. Um, I won't turn this episode into a whole Breath of the Wild podcast, um, but some listeners and certainly Dan uh, know that I actually wrote something on Breath of the Wild a while ago, um, which is kind of standardly controversial. I actually don't think that the link that's represented uh, in the memories that you collect across your journey in Breath of the Wild is the same link that wakes up in the shrine and that the player controls. I actually think that uh, the best explanation is the avatar you're guiding through the game is a kind of drone uh, or a, a fabricated machinery uh, for the purpose of fighting Ganon. And you can read more about that in the article if you're interested. But I think the broader point that is really um, salient in video games, whether or not you buy into that, is the idea that in many cases, um, the player will be presented with a story articulating the origins of their avatar and they can basically have the choice as to whether or not to integrate that into how they choose to make decisions for their avatar in the game. You learn all of these things through the memories and Breath of the Wild, but Link is not subsequently beholden to going right to the castle and defeating Calamity Ganon. You, the player, still have the opportunity to do whatever you want to with Link and still make meaning out of him that's either consonant or dissonant with that origin story. Right, And I think, you know... Um, I, I think our plan was to talk about this a little later, but that's even more front of mind for games where there's an entire follow-up game to an in initial game that adds an origin story or context to a character who didn't have it before, right? Um, like what happened in this most recent reboot of the Tomb Raider, right? Um, oftentimes, one of the ways that series are extended now is by adding origins to things that didn't initially have them. And if players so choose, that could really change the context around the actions and the choices that the player herself made in those earlier games. But the player, I think, is also in this special position where she doesn't necessarily have to elect to buy into the origin story in that way. She can still act on her own maxims. And if she thinks that the character is better defined uh, through a set of actions or reasons that aren't consonant with that origin story, that's up to the player to decide, which I think speaks to just the, the flexibility of video games to enact origin stories that we don't see in, in all other storytelling media. Yeah, it seems to me that Tomb Raider is a pretty good example of that because, you know, Lara Croft has a pretty minimalistic backstory in the early Tomb Raider games it is something that you know you even had to like read up on what the bare bones of a backstory are in this you know tiny booklet that you would get with you know for younger listeners out there back in the day <laughs> oh <laughs> no don't say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah way back when when we used to read in tiny booklets uh, who had a very 
nice smell by the way <laughs> what the actual backstory of the character was and then along comes this reboot many years later that basically well modernizes the character in quotation marks and makes her a lot more um, vulnerable gives you a lot more intimate connection to uh, younger Lara Croft yes and that can be quite tough right because I do think you have a point Aaron that there is a choice to accept whether this shall this is a, a backstory that you want to accept for that character but at the same time also it is something that people get downright offended by right because they have um, a connection they have an association that they make with this character and then they are presented with this backstory with this origin story that they might not have originally imagined and it can it can downright offend people to be exposed to this vulnerable Uh, vulnerable backstory side of of Lara Croft rather than the the heroine, the iconic heroine that has been heralded in video game culture for many years. I completely agree because I, I do think that I get the impulse to maybe give this. Um, well, okay, let's let's for the sake of argument, let's assume that Lara Croft, the character, did not exist before this Tomb Raider reboot. Then I think that um, people's understanding of what they sort of how they sort of changed her backstory. To give you that um, incredibly vulnerable side of her before making her into the hero that we are more familiar with, it almost feels like the rug is pulled out from those those people who enjoyed the original games, because I think that there is some sort of sense that players have where they think, "But wait a minute, I already understood this character to be this way. Why do I need to see this? To why why do you need to convince me that this happened prior, and then just give me the character that I was used to?" Um, I think that. Maybe you guys will disagree with me, but I do feel that that kind of feeling that Stefan was just describing is maybe a bit more, um, a, a bit stronger with video game characters when we're talking about these reboots. I won't go into it too much because this would be a whole other podcast, but I just want to mention the DMC thing. Yeah. When Devil May Cry had that reboot, I think that was almost like this vitriolic reaction to how dare you, sir, take this character and change them this way. I think it's so interesting too, Stefan, that you used the term offended when you're talking about this, right? That players who are familiar with the series can be offended by certain kinds of origin stories because I that strikes me as deeply right. And I think it speaks to exactly what you're saying, Dan, about how these origin stories in video games can have higher stakes for the people who are familiar with the series than is oftentimes the case in a film or a, a novel series or something like that. Um, Dan, you and I talk about a lot uh, how the same phenomenon arises just in broader criticism of games uh, when people like us uh, try to interpret games in particular ways. And, and sometimes the people who care about those games a lot and have played them can be offended just simply by certain lenses of how to look at and think about the games. And I think for me, that's always just spoken to how the interactive nature of games gives players a certain sense of experiential ownership over what happens in them, right? You make these decisions, you guide this avatar through this world. And because you're not only directing their actions, but also truly making decisions, like I'm going to have this avatar do this for these reasons, you have this whole complete psychological experience of how you went through the story with the avatar, right? And so then when other people come 
and add their own interpretation on that experience, uh, whether that's an interpretation of that story uh, or an origin story that changes the context of those actions you made, even if it's put out by the same storytellers. Uh, it's, it's almost in a weird way, uh, not to speak lightly or glibly of psychoanalysis, but it's kind of like you have this psychologist reinterpreting your own actions. And, and so yeah. that impulse to say, well, no, that's not what I meant. That's not what I did with the story is I think like very deeply understandably human. Uh, and it can be really hard to set that to the side in order to either analyze these things from a disinterested position or an analytical stance, uh, or even indeed to play an origin story and understand it on its own terms rather than as a reinterpretation of the games you already played. I mean, I, I mentioned Tales of Zestiria before, which is like a very simple and straightforward story. It also, interestingly, has a follow-up origin story that is much more complicated and totally changes the context of that. And it can be really hard to hold in your mind the idea that this first game was very simple, but also that the second game, which was very good on its own terms, was much more complicated and interprets that same world in a very different way. It's tricky. Yeah, I think it is quite common that people are offended by such uh, origin stories that are delivered um, you know, after the fact, basically, um, you have this, you know, The Last of Us is one example that comes to mind. Um, it has, it's very strongly pronounced in The Last of Us Part Two, but even if we exclude that from the consideration for the time being and talk specifically about the first part and especially about the DLC, the add-on, uh, The Last of Us Left Behind, where we have an assignment of an attribute to a character that players might not have originally had in mind. Something where the um, experiential uh, connection that you mentioned before, Aaron, on the one hand, and this authorial claim or even authoritative claim, right, of the of the authors of the of the studio that develops this game, where they clash, where they collide, and where a whole outrage is being caused. Um, also, obviously, in part by the fact that people were simply unwilling to accept that Ellie might just not be straight. Especially in The Last of Us, um, the the first game and its DLC, I think that um, something that that game is very interested in is how we perceive people when we're following them. And I think that, um, you know, you, you, you need only look at any prestige television show from the past 20 years to know that we can very easily develop a perception of a character if we are following their perspective. And so I think, you know, if you're, if you're latched on to Joel specifically in the first game, then I think you kind of build this world in your head that he exists in. And so for the DLC to come in and say, but wait a minute, this part of it is not how you may have uh, default understood this character. I think that that can be challenging for people because it feels as if they have almost had their their understanding of the origin story messed with or changed, which I think is uncomfortable for people. And I think that's why, for me anyway, the first Last of Us, because I, I have not played much of the second one, but the first one um, is such an interesting piece of art, uh, particularly in the video game sphere, because it does say, hang on a minute, remember there's a lot of different sides to everybody and let's let's remember that we're not just fall we're not <laughs> we're not just one thing all the time i think that's a really really great point and and i think it speaks to why i similarly think it's just 
to me ridiculous when people get offended by something like like Ellie not being straight. I mean, I think that's ridiculous for a number of reasons, but even just on the level of video game storytelling, I think one of the really, really cool and, and challenging things about the first game is, you know, we, we were um, <laughs> kind of dialoguing about this in the show notes for this episode uh, before we started recording stuff on The Last of Us, the first one, seems at first blush like a very standard origin story for Joel uh, with the with the introduction, you know, showing kind of how the death of his daughter inspires him to be the way that he is. Right. But but I almost feel like in certain ways, it's more of a a very complicated and subversive origin story for Ellie where you start off the game with your avatar being Joel's daughter. Right. And so you have that direct experiential connection to that person he values and sees in a certain role in his own life. Right. Before you then take agency over Joel. And then I think it's really important and interesting that later on in the game, you actually take control of Ellie. Right. Ellie becomes your avatar. Uh, and the way that the game has been set up, especially with that origin sequence at the beginning of the game, I think, has led you to contextualize this character Ellie, that is, through Joel's eyes and how he sees his own daughter, which, like, of course, it's very obvious to say that Ellie is like a surrogate daughter to Joel. But I think that experiential element in video games, as you're saying, Dan, actually kind of tricks you into seeing her through Joel's eyes without even mm -hmm. really grokking it um, until you sit back and reflect on it. And from that lens, it just strikes me as so clear that, of course, if you're this, you know, older guy who's been through this trauma and you see this girl as your surrogate daughter figure, of course, there are going to be certain aspects of her character that you focus on relative to yourself and your relationship with her. And of course, there are going to be those that you miss out on entirely. Right. And so I think that actually, in some instances, like that better motivates than in many other games, the reasons that we would see other attributes of hers introduced in subsequent elements of the series that are more squarely focused on her. And I think the fact that some of those attributes are surprising to people only reinforced how deeply they were led into Joel's perspective in the first game without even realizing it. It's really interesting to me. It is really interesting. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with you. You know, I originally hadn't even thought of the fact that you're playing as Sarah first because my my first approach to understanding the origin story of The Last of Us in the context of preparing for the show was that um, it is fairly traditional. And I would maintain that for the most part, there are some very traditional aspects about it. Like you have this establishment of a, of a peaceful world. Um, in When the stage is set at the very beginning of The Last of Us, you see Sarah... And you see Joel, her father, next to one another on the couch. It's his birthday. She gives him a wristwatch. It's like a very intimate, peaceful scene. And it's established as a status quo, a peaceful, desirable status quo. And then you wake up in the night as Sarah and you see... The first thing I think that you see is that on the television, you have uh, you see an explosion and this explosion then rep happens right outside your window, right? This is like, you know, Bowser is approaching. It is <laughs> right. this peaceful world is in danger. And as you venture downstairs and you come into the living room, you see like there's a zombie, I think, coming in through a glass door, coming in through the back door and Joel and it's like chaos and Joel shoots the zombie. I know it's not 
technically a zombie, but for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to refer to them as such for the time being, right? And I do think that this is kind of a disruption of this world of peace where the adventure begins, where the where the origin story properly gets going. And you it then concludes after you, you know, you change roles, you take over Joel then after fleeing with the with with a car and getting into a car accident. And eventually the origin story here concludes when Sarah is being shot. And what is very interesting about that is that in contrast to something like Super Mario in The Last of Us, it is actually made abundantly clear that this world of peace, this desirable state is gone forever. It's lost. You know, Sarah is not coming back. She's not magically resurrected. Yeah. She is actually dead. And I think this is the radical approach that The Last of Us takes, where it's not Bowser doesn't come and kidnap the princess, but it's more like, uh, you know, Bowser crushes the princess in front of Mario's eyes and he spends the rest of the game dealing with that, you know? Pretty bleak, and I think I think what's so what's so interesting about um, the Last of Us that you guys have both just touched on is that we have um, a great example of a very clear origin, and then almost as if you're thinking, okay, this is um, if we're continuing with the monomyth, I, I can kind of put together how the rest of this may happen. But I think the very important thing that um, bleeds into what Aaron was saying is that Sarah is dead at the beginning of the game. You you understand very quickly, I cannot go back to this place. I cannot go back to the Shire. I cannot go back to Kokiri Forest. There is something else that is going on here. And I think that um, it it makes the the player sort of think about, wow, how do I how do I square this origin story that I was just presented with with everything that will follow? And I think what Aaron just described is one way to square that, right? Where you think, oh, perhaps this isn't so much a story about Joel, but much more a story about Ellie and this background that Joel is, has, that, that has been shared with us is context for who Ellie is as a person. It's interesting too, though, because, you know, you, you uh, talk about that very classic origin notion of not being able to go back. Right. And, and as much as I think it is a perspective on Ellie, I think that death of Sarah is also the idea of Joel from the very beginning of the game being shown that he can't go back to this relationship. And then of course, one of the core struggles of the game is that he seems to be trying to go back to that relationship and rebuild it with, with Ellie as his daughter. So you kind of see in the first moment uh, how, self-defeating or challenging Joel's perspective on the world and, and his attempt to adapt is. Yeah, I mean, the origin story is basically the establishment of a backstory wound. Yeah. You know, while taking um, some screenwriting classes at university, I was always taught, like, it was the golden rule of storytelling, every character needs a backstory wound. And that kind of backstory wound would, in The Last of Us, it happened straight at the beginning, and it spans the entire game. Basically, it opens up a gigantic bracket that is then closed at the ending and, well, maybe even further explored in the second game, in the sequel. Um, but in something like Tomb Raider, the backstory wound is established um, way later on, in hindsight, basically. And a big appeal of having such a backstory wound is obviously that you can increase narrative complexity. 
you have a lot of options, a lot of narrative strands that you can still explore in order to flesh out the character, make them more believable, but also just, you know, tell more stories and further develop that character and that series that you have created. An origin, in other words. An origin, yes, exactly. <laughs> and we've got so much more to say on this subject. You know, dear listeners, don't consider this to be a conclusive consideration of origin stories, but rather as a stepping stone, as a, a first step in the direction of exploring the origin story. Because we're going to have lots more episodes ahead where we will uh, touch on um, topics and aspects of, of the origin story that we have not yet explored, but we have it already noted down in our script. We're running out of time here, um, which is why I would suggest that we maybe do some side quests now. Let's do it. And when we say side quests, then we mean that we jump into various different topics that piqued our curiosity throughout the last week. And Aaron, you brought a glimpse into your own work from your own from an article that you're currently working on, right? Yeah, guys. So I'm hoping this can tee up a broader discussion down the line, but I'm working actually right now on writing something on the more academic side uh, for a journal, uh, basically as a reply to um, a conversation that I've, I've had the fortune to play an ongoing part of uh, in the realm of player avatar relations. Uh, and so that's been on my mind and I figured it would be fun to chat about the ins and outs of players and their relationships to video game fictions. But in the side quest, I wanted to set it up uh, with a thought that I think is is pretty common and easy for gamers to relate to uh, and frankly just pick the brains of both of you about how you think and talk about video games. So to give people a little setup for this, uh, you know, my background is in philosophy and philosophers, you know, you can describe what they do in a lot of ways, but, but basically they try to explain and construct theories for understanding everything interesting about the world, right? That's a, a very common and high level way of thinking about what they do. And so what that means in practice is that oftentimes they will pick out particular phenomena about the world or a particular area of inquiry uh, and ask the question of why is this the way it is and construct a theory about that, right? So if it seems like it's wrong to pull the lever of a trolley that would divert it from a track with five people on it uh, and only kill one person on another track, philosophers might take that as a phenomenon warranting explanation and ask, well, why does that seem wrong? What does that tell us about the moral universe, right? To take what is both a very trite example in moral philosophy and a similarly trite example nowadays from the realm of video games, right? Um, but in the realm of player avatar theory, uh, you know, we live in a really cool time in that now there are a number of academics thinking about video games from basically all angles. Stefan is one of them, right, working on his PhD on video games and madness, uh, which, which is pretty cool, right? Um, but some people in game studies and philosophy also think a lot about trying to answer the question of what exactly is the role that a player plays in the fiction of video games because you know it might be intuitive as someone playing games to simply say well you know i pick up the controller i press buttons the avatar moves i'm just playing the role of the avatar in one way or another but it turns out that as you 
go further into the domain of inquiry. If you take that view seriously, you end up having trouble explaining a lot of basic things about how we understand the fictions of video games. So people ask themselves, okay, how can we develop a more robust understanding of the player's role in video games that does a better job of explaining all the different aspects of how video games tell stories, right? And and that's a lot of what I work on, both on With a Terrible Fate and academically. Right. Can you illustrate what such a problem would be, a problem that you can't explain by by considering the player to, or yeah, the, the avatar to be an embodiment in the diegetic world? Yeah, so here's a, a really standard example, and I wrote a, a much longer paper on this, so that could easily be a main quest too. Um, but to take the simple example, suppose you're playing Skyrim, right? Uh, and your avatar, the Dragonborn, is going through a dungeon. Uh, and, you know, as the avatar is going through the dungeon, it rounds a corner and there's a monster there that the player didn't expect. And the monster kills the avatar, right? So the avatar resets at the beginning of the dungeon before that corner, right? And now when the player takes the avatar around that corner, uh, they avoid the monster, Right. And so it seems like within the fiction of the game, you can ask this question and it deserves an explanation. Why did the avatar avoid that monster? Now you kind of have a problem, right? Because the avatar died the last time it went around that corner. So it doesn't seem sense to attribute the knowledge of what was around that corner to the avatar. You can't say, oh, the dragonborn knew there was a monster around that corner. Uh, it seems like the right explanation has something to do with the fact that the player knew there was a monster around that corner. But if what the player is doing in the video game just consists in playing as the avatar, it doesn't seem like you have that explanation available to you, right? So that's just one problem. There are others, uh, and I think that would be a fun podcast episode but that's the kind of thing that we're talking about right okay okay um so to zoom back right we talked about how philosophers often take particular real world phenomena as a jumping off point for building theory right and one more specific thing that philosophers sometimes do is basically try to explain what they call the ordinary language around a domain right which is basically just to say that they think about how we talk about that domain, uh, and especially when it seems like there's a puzzle about the words that we use or how we're referring to things, they can try to construct a theory with the goal of explaining why we talk about it in the way that we do, right? So one such piece of ordinary language that theorists of player avatar relations oftentimes focus on is this. When I'm playing a video game, right, and let's let's stay with the Skyrim example for the sake of simplicity, right, and the avatar is doing things, when we're talking about that game as we're playing it, we will often attribute the actions of an avatar to ourselves, the player, right? Instead of saying, like, the dragonborn rounded that corner and got killed, we'll say something like, oh man, I can't believe I went around that corner and got killed right away, right? Seemingly referring to ourselves, the player. Um, and that's really unusual, right? We don't do that with other fictions. We don't say that, uh, you know, when, when Batman is fighting with the Joker in The Dark Knight, the Christopher Nolan film, we don't say, oh man, I'm having such a hard time beating the Joker right now, right? Even if well, we- I do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> People besides Dan do that. But you'd be identifying more with the Joker anyway, so shut up. My example stands. I'm having trouble defeating Batman. <laughs> oh, my God. I got some things to talk about cards. With you. 
So it seems really interesting, right? It seems interesting to think that when we are playing a video game and engaging with this fiction, we talk about the avatar as if we, the player, were the avatar. And it also seems fairly stable, even if it's not the player talking about the avatar in this game, but also someone who's watching. Like if Dan were the one playing Skyrim, I would, you know, it would make sense for me who's watching him to say to him something like, oh man, I can't believe that monster killed you, something like that, right? And so it does seem like an interesting phenomenon, right? And so it makes sense that oftentimes in the literature, uh, people will take this as a jumping off point for analysis and say, well, let's try to explain what's going on with how a player interacts with these video game fictions such that it makes sense that they would be talking about themselves as the avatar. And especially, you know, if you think that for reasons like the ones I was talking about before, if you think that it's not a simple matter of the player identifying as the avatar, it becomes that much more of an interesting puzzle to figure out, well, what the heck is going on when we talk about video game stories, right? Now, what I wanted to do in the remainder of my side quest, now that I've kind of set the stage for this, is just chat with you guys a little bit and pick your brains about how you talk about what goes on in video game stories. I'll say as a little preview of what I'm working on right now and why this is on the top of my mind. My current view is I think that focusing just on that kind of statement, saying, I can't believe I died, is too restrictive in terms of the ordinary language that we're trying to explain in video games. What I think is interesting is that when we're playing a game, it's equally apt to talk about the player doing the avatar's actions or to talk about the player, uh, excuse me, the avatar doing the avatar's actions. You can attribute the avatar's actions to either of those entities, which I think is interesting. And I think what's kind of even more interesting to me, but which I want to get more data on from gamers like you, and so thank you for being delightful pawns in my research, is (laughs) I think when I look at how games are discussed everywhere from in academic journals to regular reviews and game journalism to colloquial conversations between gamers like us, when we're just discussing the plot of a game in the abstract versus, you know, being in the act of playing a game, I think those locutions of attributing avatar actions to the player are much less apt. If I'm just talking about the plot of Skyrim in the abstract, it's going to be weird if I say, oh yeah, you know, and then I had to go to this new town in order to do this thing. It's much more normal, I think, to talk about things that the Dragonborn does when we're not actually in the middle of playing the game. And I think that's just an interesting difference in the data of ordinary language that a lot of people don't think about. So with that very long preamble, I want to put it to you guys. How do you think about the actions of avatars and how, how do you talk about avatars when you're playing the game versus when you're talking about games in the abstract? Do you think that there's a difference? It reminds me very much of Marshall McLuhan, what you said, one of the mm. most influential media studies scholars, I would say, um, who's, by the way, a fantastic production machine of all kinds of hypotheses that he just throws out in the world. Mm. He gives the example of a car where he says someone's driving a car and then someone, uh, someone let's say, uh, uh, cuts you off, you know? Or cuts you short. I don't know how you how to say it perfectly. Yeah. Right. In Either English. one. Uh, okay. Either one. Okay. Yeah. And then you say like, oh wow, he 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 cut me he cut me off, or he drove into me. You know, when someone rams into mm. your car. In German, at least, you would say, er ist mir reingefahren. He drove into me, but actually he didn't drive into you. He drove into your car. The reason for 
why you use that kind of uh, of diction is because you uh, yourself is externalized, extended to that car. The car becomes part of yourself. And I would say that in the case of the player avatar relationship, it works in a similar way as in it is a double bind between on the one hand embodiment and on the other hand possession where I say when I am embodying this avatar, when I am in control of what this avatar does, then it is me. I am jumping. Oh, how do I jump? You know, it's like, don't show me how I really jump. Show me how my avatar jumps. You know, I'm externalizing. My, the avatar is an externalization of myself. Whereas when there's a disconnect between that, like in that control, and that can be a disconnect that happens because you die in the game, i.e. the avatar dies in the game and you fail as a player. Uh, it can be because of a cutscene that comes in or a sequence where you don't have that control. It comes much more a matter of, you know, possession. It's like, this is a, a thing that I have or a character that I, that I have. When you don't know how to do a certain action, you know, then it becomes mm -hmm. a matter of possession, an object that you don't have full control over that is kind of yours, but you don't have full control over it. That's how I see it as a double bind. I like the idea of the um, the distance between I am this thing and I have control over this thing comes in when there's a particularly difficult activity you're trying to complete. I bring this up. So I was playing um, Call of Cthulhu last night with Aaron watching, and there is a particular um, point where for the entire time I've been saying, you know, I can't, I can't figure this out. And then there's a certain point where you, you almost reach this threshold where you say, I, I can't, okay, I'm no longer this character. I'm, I'm not playing a role anymore. I'm trying to complete this objective puzzle that I cannot do with this thing I am controlling. Um, I find that just to, to piggyback off of what Stefan was saying, I think I'm very similar where I, when I'm in the moment, I'm saying I am doing these things, even in situations where the character I'm controlling has um, a fairly strong characterization. I would say that the Dragonborn is different from something like um, Cloud Strife and Final Fantasy VII. Sure. Um, but I think that where I go is that when I look back on it, in those instances where the characters have a bit more depth, I find that I almost share what I interpret to be their memories of something, where I think not we both experienced it. So my experience is not just my own, it's also the avatars in that moment, in that cutscene, in that particular fight. So I think that I haven't done much thinking on that, but I think just hearing what Stefan was saying, I realized that um, I, I look at it differently at different stages of recollecting it. I think that's really interesting and, and to tease up what I hope will be a much longer conversation about this. One interesting observation I'll make about uh, what you said, Stefan, uh, and, and I laugh because I experienced this too, but I feel like for you, because you've spent so much time in game studies it's very hard to think about these phenomena in a pre-theoretic way like yeah, your yeah, first yeah. impulse was to to you know go to a standing and established theory of how that works right which i totally get i have that own issue with distancing myself from from my own theory of how this works which is very different right um and i think you know just to put a button on this that I think that's part of what we're trying to adjudicate on with a terrible fate, right? Which I think is really hard, but also really cool, right? This capacity to straddle what just pre-theoretic regular experience of this awesome storytelling medium is with the theoretical apparatus to analyze and understand it in a way that is not available to us when we simply play the game and put it down and don't think about it further. 
Yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm terrible at contributing to such a such a study as a guinea pig because I'm I'm <laughs> not really an ordinary gamer in that, in that sense. But I do think I would be very curious. Actually, I know that's not really what you're doing. You're not doing like an empiric uh, like questionnaire or any such thing. But it would be actually really interesting to ask people who play video games maybe don't have that kind of, let's say, a cognitive engagement with the subject and just simply speak intuitively to maybe just observe how people are talking about it like you, Aaron, did with Dan yesterday evening. I think that that is really cool and really interesting. It's very funny because you you get that same uh, challenge that you just talked about in philosophy journals all the time where so much of philosophy is based on uh, our, our settled reflective intuitions on a particular subject. And so authors will say, well, you know, we all have this intuition and so let's move forward from that. But if, if you're not like an academically trained philosopher who has thought about that for a long time, you can pick up an article and look at this intuition about like, you know, what to do in a very nuanced, like special case of the trolley problem and be like, what, what the heck? I don't have that intuition. So <laughs> I, I think you're exactly right. And, and listeners, if you're listening to this and would like to join the conversation, I would really love to know uh, how you talk about how you play games and how you refer to avatar actions, both when you're playing them and when you're just talking about games uh, in the abstract and not playing them. So please let us know. Uh, yeah. Our inbox is always open at podcast at with a terrible fate.com. If you'd like to join in the conversation. My side quest concerns Assassin's Creed Valhalla because I have recently dropped it. I, I have now started playing Disco Elysium. I'm going to talk about that more in the coming episodes, but I had picked up Assassin's Creed Valhalla after a long leave of absence. I played the first two games, the first two Assassin's Creed games. I loved them quite a bit at the time when they came out. I think when I, if I would replay them now, I would probably not love them as much as I did back then, but they were pretty innovative. They were pretty important pretty impressive and then i dropped out of the series because they just produced more games they produced the games faster than i could possibly play them and uh, now i jumped back into valhalla and i thought let's give this a try the series has changed they've learned a lot well this is in certain in certain ways true i would say because valhalla is not a bad game it i would say it does have actually pretty fantastic and interesting moments one of the best parts of Valhalla, which takes place in this, you know, Viking settings, the Vikings invading England, is that while you explore this vast and very atmospheric world, that you come upon all kinds of small, precious side stories. They call them mysteries. And I love those side stories. They're fantastic. There's just as a brief example, you come upon a small hut, a child cries in front of this hut. And the reason for that is it stinks in that hut. It reeks mm. of feces, and your 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 character, actually your avatar, mm. uh, Eivor, he comes by and he's like, "Yeah, that house stinks of shit." And then it, <laughs> it turns out that the that the father of that of that family, he's a so called shit warrior in quotation marks. He would use feces to scare of enemies and to disgust them deliberately. Pretty nasty tactic. And he doesn't wash. And what you need to do then is you need to remove his crates of feces from the house. And then you need to push the father into a, into like a pond so he gets clean. And then the, this tiny mystery is solved. And this happens all the time. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And I love that. The big problem is though that Every before any kind of mystery that you come across, you do 20 activities that are exceedingly repetitive, where you just 
go in somewhere, get that completely random loot that you don't care about at all that just gives you an incremental increase in your resources and then you do it over and over and over again to an extent where i just felt like it's offending me that this video game doesn't respect my time you know i i can't mm. i know that if i want to do this if i want to if i want to complete this game and i love completing games i'm going to spend so much time doing extremely repetitive things without actually having fun you know that moment when you play and you realize, am I actually enjoying myself right now or am I just trying to get through a checklist? Yes. This is the Assassin's Creed experience, the essential Assassin's Creed experience. I think <laughs> it's the note that you put in our um, our episode notes actually made me laugh out loud. You just said it. It just doesn't respect my time. And I think that that's a feeling that um, I know I I get often when I play video games, particularly newer AAA titles, where it feels like so much padding is put into the game um, to maybe give the illusion of a lot of content, which is a shame because it sounds like, and I haven't played Valhalla yet, I don't know that I will, but it sounds like there are some interesting side stories in there. And I think that in a world where a game like Ghost of Tsushima exists, where it is immersive from moment one, with all of its side quests, all of its um, all of its content, I think you know it can be done to make these expansive worlds feel like they not only respect your time but also your intelligence when you're going through it and enjoying the the world that it's created. So I do feel that's a big problem. Maybe it's the Assassin's Creed problem at the end of the day, like you're saying, is that just too many things that are repetitive, too many uh, tra you know trailing missions too many collectathons. It just feels like, what are you really getting out of it at the end of it? I feel like there are, are two different issues here that are worth disambiguating. Uh, and I don't know that I'll ever play Valhalla either because I wrote an article really early on about how the way Majora's Mask uses aliens just made me that much more upset about how Assassin's Creed uses aliens. And then I never went back to the series because three made me so mad in that regard. But uh, with that in mind and thinking about Valhalla, I, I think, you know, you mentioned two really different interesting things, Stefan. One is the extent to which it is respectful or disrespectful of your time. And two, which is related, but I think distinct, is the degree to which it is tedious or not fun to play, right? And I think thinking about those two things separately is really interesting and important to me because... I remember we just, we just talked about Nier um, last week in honor of its upgraded version being released. And I remember early on in my playing Nier, I shared it with a friend of mine and he played it and he put it down pretty quickly. And he mentioned how one of the big contributive factors to that was that the world didn't seem that fun or engaging. It felt very tedious. But I think in certain games with certain aesthetics, just like with certain art more broadly, it can sometimes be the point that you do not enjoy it, right? Uh, another good modern example that uh, more people might be familiar with is Death Stranding, right? I mean, critically acclaimed game, really artistic, really interesting, also one of the most tedious experiences that you can have, right? At least in my personal opinion, right? But then there's also this idea that some games take much 
too too much of their players time to make their point right which i think is much less responsible there's an article that i've been sitting on forever and i don't know if i'll I'll ever write it but uh dan you and i talk about this a lot in terms of final fantasy 13 the first one and I, i don't know if i ever told you this but i think all the time about how when you think about the issues of control and agency and characters determining their destiny that are in you know final fantasy 13 so many of the same issues uh, and not just versions of those issues, but I think really the same themes come about in the great indie game Inside. But Inside takes maybe three hours to complete, whereas Final Fantasy takes like 30, 40 hours minimum, right? Um, and I think that that's that's the trend that really bothers me. Like you can have meaningful experiences that are not fun to enjoy, but when you just take too much of a player's time with all that padding, as you said, Dan, to get to those points, that just that seems unfair and irresponsible to me. Stefan, you uh, another you may have been gearing up to talk about this, but the other note that you had, which I found was really interesting, was the idea that when people when people say, "Well, why don't you just skip all of that?" right, and yeah. it almost feels like, well then am I really in, am I really having the experience? Right. And I, I was w- hoping you could talk a little bit more about what you had written there. Yeah, that is exactly a problem that I have. One of the big problems is it, it is a lot of padding, but it's not reflective. It doesn't really make a point with this padding. It actually seems arrogant, I think, of me. Uh, not of me. It seems arrogant of Assassin's Creed to think that it's fun. <laughs> You know, the thing that we can just throw this at, at, at players and be like, hey, this is a really fun time. And it's actually not. But um, yeah, th- this this note that I made um, relates to the argument that I often get when I say that I don't I feel like it's fun or I want to put down the game because it's so repetitive. And it's like, yeah, you, but you can skip a lot of that. You know, you don't really need all of that. And I always feel like it's ridiculous in several ways. Um one way in which it is ridiculous is that I feel like if I need to not not experience part of something in order to enjoy it more, then it's not good. Or it's not. It doesn't make the entire thing bad, but it certainly is is a, a, a like a, a spot on it. When there's a song on a record that I always skip because I don't like that song, then the album can't be really that perfect you know and and i think it's just it's just like if you compare it to any kind of other narrative form if you would say yeah the the film is really cool you just need to skip half an hour in the middle and then it's all good (laughs) then it's like well but why and the biggest question that i have is why make it then you know why do it because ubisoft is such a huge studio they clearly put a lot of effort in their games but assassin's creed Valhalla on the ps5 is pretty buggy it's pretty buggy and glitchy we can talk about that another time as well and there could so much work could be done when it comes to character development when it comes to the stories but instead they just clutter everything and someone must sit down there and has to place all of these chests somewhere and okay they're with randomly filled loot but why i just don't see the point i just feel like is it just to increase the quantity of hours that you spend in this game in order to maybe hope that someone's going to buy some more cosmetics because they spent another 10 hours in the game, even though they just looted random unimportant chests. 
It just doesn't make sense. The short answer is yes. This is funny though, because I mean, Dan will be the first to tell you, I usually take an even more cynical and angry stance than you do about this stuff. But for the second week in a row, I'm going to try to be the voice of optimism, uh, which which is really weird to me, especially when it's in defense of Assassin's Creed, uh, which I, I just said is far <laughs> from my favorite series. But I do think this is one of the interesting um places and a case study in fact of what we were talking about last week where video games like anything can serve different functions and be evaluated differently in quality based on the function we're talking about right and one thing that makes me contemplate that especially in terms of you know what people nowadays call open world games like valhalla right is i feel like to some extent at least in my understanding of this, and, and I'll qualify this by saying I really don't play many of those games because I focus on games of storytelling. But I think with many of those open world games, it's almost more of games as simulation, where the idea is to make the worlds feel robust and filled out by creating more activity than you could ever possibly do so that the point is in fact not to do everything but to pick and choose what to do as you would pick and choose in the real world right so there's a sense of verisimilitude behind it right now i think to the extent that a game also tries to tell a story and those two functions pull apart, it can be really frustrating. And I think that is perhaps what is part of what's so frustrating about something like Valhalla is that it tries to do both. And when it tries to do both, you just feel caught in the middle, not sure which of them you're supposed to be spending your time on or how you're supposed to be treating the game. That is spot on exactly the experience that I have. Yeah. On that note, I think um, I want to bring up my side quest for this week, which is something I've been mulling over for the past few weeks. Um, and that is the, the whole debacle that just took place with the PlayStation 3 and PlayStation Vita games um, being threatened, um, <laughs> it, which felt like at gunpoint to be taken off the, the PlayStation store. Um, luckily, for the time being, at least at the time of recording, that's no longer happening and those games are still available. But I think that... Um, this speaks to a greater anxiety that I have as we go into digital libraries. Um, I am a, I'm a fan of digital libraries in the sense that I think they're convenient. I think they're, um, they're very easy for people to, you know, access games. I think it's a really great way to play games without necessarily, um, going through the whole rigmarole of buying, um, hardware or additional, um, you know, periphery that you may need to play it. But I, this is a really good example of how that can just be taken away arbitrarily. And this is um, maybe a sequel to what Stefan had brought up last week with the acidization of video games and this idea that um, we don't, we're, it seems like we may be trending into a world where we don't own the games that we play. Um, we don't own a copy of them. Uh, as we may have with physical copies. As much as I like digital downloads, I much prefer physical copies of video games. I always buy a physical copy if it's available because I have this deep fear that it'll be taken away from me at some point. Um, and I think that that's all well and good for someone like me who is in a, um, uh, you know, who makes a comfortable amount of money and can buy perhaps both the digital and physical copy, one or the other, or both, depending on what I would like. But I think about 
um, particularly uh, kids who don't maybe have access um, to as much as many video games as I do. And I just think about the one, like I, I grew up where everyone had maybe one or two games that they were excited about. And there was maybe the rich kid who had all the cool games. Now, I think um, if you're in that position and maybe you have one game on Steam or maybe one or two games on the PlayStation Store, and those are the games that you go to because they're the ones that you have access to, and then all of a sudden one day they're gone, I mean, that would be like ripping a book out of a person's hand, I think. And to me, I feel very strongly about it. So I'm glad that the games are still up on the PlayStation Store. But I think what this um, speaks to is how tenuous that position is. It could go away at any time. And I personally think that's criminal. (laughs) So (laughs) that's my stance on it. I know you guys both have strong opinions, so I'll open the floor. I didn't want to spend too much time on it. It's just something that I don't think we'll be going away this debate anytime soon. I assume you have a PS5 disc version. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. I actually don't. I actually just purchased the digital version only. Well, that's a whole other can of worms of what's available with PS5s right now, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> although although I'm saying, you, you know, for me, and it it is directly related to this to this issue. For me, one of the main reasons for going for a digital version is that I only purchase digital games these days and i just Mm. like purely experientially speaking never had the situation that i lost access to a game um for maybe only when i switch to a new generation of consoles like for example i can't play max Payne 3 which is a game i very much like and i analyze for my phd and that's a little bit hard to come by because it's a ps3 game i think and it's not even on ps4 if i recall correctly so uh, this can be quite annoying but that is really the only situation where i ever ever lost access to something otherwise it always comes up in some way as a remaster or it's available to be streamed on playstation now or something like that i think about so a library if i if i one day decide that i'm really interested in the works of yates or i want to dive into the western canon or something like that i can go to any library and i can have access to that book um but video games are a very strange piece of media because um if i if I want to play, say, Legend of Dragoon um, on PlayStation 1, you know, until uh, recently, it, it's very, you know, you can't just go out and find it. You have to get a PlayStation 1, you have to get Legend of Dragoon, a physical copy. So there's a bit more of a barrier to entry, which is where I think the digital library is really great because it gives people access to these older titles. So I think that's another reason I'm worried is because if those no longer exist, then I think the difficulty in finding these old stories goes up by like crazy. So Aaron, over to you. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you two things. And, uh, this is maybe, this is not directly the same thing that you're talking about, but where I really think about this is the PS plus service that Sony offers. I love it. Um, and, you know, it's great because it's bundled with their online service and I would be paying for that anyway so that I can, you know, play online with with people like you guys um, in multiplayer games. But it's such this weird double-edged sword, the PS Plus um, 
offer of having free games that you can download every month because you know i try to take advantage of that as part of the service and i've played a lot of great games through that that i wouldn't otherwise have picked up but when you go and look at your digital library all of those games that you download that way have this little plus icon on their um, icon in your library. And it's like a little brand to me that says, if you ever stop paying us monthly, we will take all these <laughs> games away from you. And I hate that. That's so, uh, I mean, it's weird because you are getting the games for free, but it's also, I think, this really... Uh, from one perspective, at least sinister way of programming people to be more comfortable with exactly what you were talking about last week, Stefan, games as rent, right? So that when we move towards more streaming models of things like PS Now, as you just mentioned, where you truly don't own the games and are just paying for access, you feel like you're not giving up anything when in fact you are. Now, Secondly, in, in terms of trying to bring things back to the optimistic bent, which, which I guess is my, uh, my, my interlocutive role <laughs> in these side quests so far, I'll, I'll tell you, Nintendo so oftentimes is a great counterpoint to what is happening in other corners of the industry. And one thing that I love that, that speaks to, uh, I think at least what is in part a different philosophy for them, is uh, one of the favorite things that I own, which is the classic Super Nintendo Entertainment System that they put out a few years ago, right? Where not only did they create this little kind of miniaturized, cute USB version of one of their own systems, but it comes loaded with like 25 games from that generation. And you don't have to pay or plug into the internet or do anything to access those. Those are just yours forever. And of course, it's not quite the same thing as, you know, a proper system. You can't go and get other Super Nintendo games and plug it in. But I think that philosophy of giving the next generation of gamers the opportunity to own and play those old games whenever they want is something that Nintendo has been really great about. I mean, they've said before that's part of their philosophy about why they remaster games and put them out for newer consoles. And so I think it's it's probably one of those cases where, as we were talking about last week in your side quest, Stefan, like both models will probably persist. And hopefully, you know, as we as gamers become more literate in these different models of, of gaming, you know, we, we can choose whether we want to just continuously pay for access or, you know, have ownership and authority over our libraries. But it's hard. It's really hard. Nintendo does that really well with its... Uh emulator as well on the Nintendo Switch, uh, right, where you have a pretty broad selection of um, NES and SNES games. I'm actually not sure how many people use that. I feel like it's a little bit almost overlooked, but it is a pretty cool selection. So I would encourage everyone who loves older Nintendo games to download that and just browse through the library. I, I will say, before we sign off, just as a, a, a pessimistic counterpoint, because um, I love Nintendo too, um, I, although I will say that that recent um, Mario 3D All-Stars uh, All situation, I understand perhaps limiting the physical copies But when they say we're also shutting it off for download online, that 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 makes me uh, that hurts. Makes me yeah, it hurts. It that's fair. me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel fair. your pain, and I, I do think there's been a pretty long ongoing discussion about uh, video game preservation in Germany. There is actually a video game museum here in Berlin, and um, I think it's always a contentious issue to which degree museums such as these are allowed to crack copyrights uh, protected material in order to 
preserve it. I definitely do think it should be completely permitted for a museum such as this to do that. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a very broad conversation to go into. I think for today, that's a wrap, right? We've got everything covered? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Then thank you very much, dear listeners out there, for following us on this journey. If you enjoy this show, then please consider supporting us over at patreon.com slash with a terrible fate. One of the things that really, really would help us these days is if you could go on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and give us a juicy five-star review so we get bumped up in the algorithm a little bit. Of course, if you're curious, you listen to this show and you want to read more, then go to withaterriblefate.com where you can find all our written content. And follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, or send an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com with your thoughts and questions. And then we'll talk again next week. 